On August 13, 1983, Starkey Swenson left his home on bicycle and set off into the Nina, Wisconsin night. His planned destination and route are unknown. What is known, he was never heard from again. Ten years later, with no trace of Swenson's body ever found, a man was arrested and charged with Swenson's murder. He maintains his innocence, but halts his 1994 trial by accepting a lesser charge and is sentenced to two years in prison. To this day, that man, John C. Andrews, refuses to admit any involvement or guilt in the crime. Starkey Swenson's body has never been found. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, and together with my team, I've been asked by investigators to help find the body, and with it, answers. In this podcast, we'll review the case in detail, applying today's knowledge and technology, and chronicle the effort to locate and recover the lost body of Starkey Swenson. This is Cold Case, Frozen Tundra, Episode 4, Nightmare on Elm Street. Welcome again to Cold Case, Frozen Tundra. I'm your co-host, Matt Hiskus. On March 15, 1994, Stephen Glenn, a defense attorney from Milwaukee, stands in a courthouse in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and tells a Winnebago County jury that John C. Andrews, his client, did not murder Starkey Swenson. Local media have been captivated by the recent revitalization of the Starkey Swenson case. The major breaks in that case were detailed in the first three episodes, and if you haven't listened to those yet, we recommend that you do that now. Swenson went missing after leaving his home on bicycle around 8.30 p.m. on August 13, 1983, and for 10 years, investigators had no credible leads as to what happened to him. All of that changed when Suzanne Eggert, a former girlfriend of John Andrews, detailed to police in 1993 that Swenson was part of a love triangle with John Andrews and his former wife, Claire Andrews, and that she witnessed a confrontation between John and Starkey at the Shattuck Junior High School that resulted in Andrews killing Swenson with his car. A pretrial hearing in 1993 resulted in a Winnebago County judge ruling that there was enough evidence to proceed to a full trial with John Andrews charged with first-degree murder. However, Andrew's defense lawyers still believed that the case against him was weak. In their opening statement, they highlight for the jury that with regards to the charge of murder, there was, quote, not one bit of scientific evidence that supports this claim, end quote. They also point out that the testimony of Suzanne Eggert, the prosecution's star witness, was not consistent, saying that Eggert, quote, never told the same story about this case in the 18 separate times she talked about it, end quote. So as expected, the prosecution's opening statement sought to dismiss the defense's argument. In terms of there being no scientific evidence, Joseph Paulus, the Winnebago County District Attorney, explained that it should be expected since it was well-established that John Andrews had intensively cleaned his car on the day after Swenson's disappearance. Similarly, Paulus said that the slight discrepancies in Eggert's testimony were trivial, 
since broken bicycle parts had been found by the janitor in the grassy alcove at Shattuck Junior High, essentially independently corroborating her account that Andrews ran Swenson over with his car at that location on the school's grounds. The prosecution even used their opening statement to claim that Andrews had left Nina immediately after killing Swenson to travel to a bar in Omro, Wisconsin, about 20 miles away, in an effort to establish an alibi. Following the opening statements, one of the first aspects of the trial was a ruling by the judge to allow the jurors to be taken to Shattuck Junior High to view the crime scene in person. Interestingly, this move was objected to by the prosecution who argued that the scene had changed in a decade and wouldn't truly reflect what the area was like in 1983. The defense dismissed this argument, stating that, in 1994, the area was actually better lit than it was at the time of the alleged crime. Okay, just to recap a little, Suzanne Eggert's story to the police in pretrial testimony describes the murder of Starkey Swenson as taking place in a grassy alcove at Shattuck Junior High in Nina. Initially, Eggert says she was sitting in her car with the windows down at the intersection of Elm and Division, a few doors down from the home of Claire Andrews, when she hears a verbal confrontation between two men taking place in the grassy alcove. She can't see the men at the time, but she can see the taillights of a vehicle aglow in the alcove. According to Eggert, she recognizes one of the two voices as John Andrews, which she said she was able to do partly because of Andrews' unique British accent. As the argument between the two men continues, Eggert listens in. She hears a man pleading with Andrews, saying, no, John, don't, two different times. The second time, Suzanne reports that the man adds, I'll stay away from her, or possibly, I'll stay away from Claire. Eventually, Eggert hears a male scream that she says sounds cut off, as if stopped at its peak. And this was followed by metal scraping on the pavement and two loud thumps on a car, and eventually a sound like wood breaking. After all of that, Eggert says that she hears a voice, the one that she identified as John Andrews, saying, There, now you're dead. How do you like that? Eggert told the police that after hearing all of that, she drives away from the altercation down Elm Street, pulling around the corner of the school onto Loudon Boulevard, and she parks there. It's not clear whether she sees more of the scene while she's parked there on Loudon Boulevard, or if she's viewing it while driving back past the school as she leaves as she's had some conflicted reports of her testimony. But we do know that Eggert tells police and later the court that she sees John Andrews' blue Pontiac Firebird parked at the junior high, that it's in the school's driveway, which is right near the alcove. She also says she sees John leaning into the open trunk of his car. So obviously, for the jury to evaluate this pivotal testimony, they're going to need to see firsthand the layout of Shattuck Junior High and its surrounding neighborhood. Right. And you can see why the judge ruled that it was permissible. So that makes me question why the prosecution wouldn't want the jury to see the location. You would think that in a case that relies on purely circumstantial evidence, the context of Eggert's observations would need to support their claims. Yeah. I mean, to me, the most interesting aspect of the description of the scene is the fact that when Eggert says she saw Andrews leaning into the trunk of his car in the alcove while she was sitting at the corner of Elm and Loudon, she was about a thousand feet away from where that car would have been. To be honest, for me, trying to mentally determine how far away that is, is pretty difficult. Yeah, I agree. Probably the best thing we can do now to try to assess this case is go visit the scene ourselves. 
we're, we are just across from Claire Andrews' house. And so she's probably a little further down the road here. We can currently see into the alcove. So that alcove has had that little walkway added to it subsequent to 1980. Yeah, even looking at the site on Google Maps, you and know. Subsequent to 1993, I'm sure they had the jury come out here. Can you go take a look? Sure. So we're walking through the school grounds now, hopefully not going to get kicked off. And we're headed towards the alcove in the school. It's a nice looking school, really. Yeah, cool old historic building. Yeah, interesting in terms of this alcove. So there's there's kind of a second building outside of the main building. And this used to be a grassy courtyard between the two buildings that now has a walkway built through it, but this used to go all the way through to the other side. And this is where John Andrews apparently murdered Sarkey Swenson. Now, is that the tree? Either this one or the one on the other side. There's one on each side of the courtyard. Let's get a photo of this. Interesting. Interesting. So we're heading back away from the alcove now. Back down the sidewalk to the school. I would say the alcove is maybe 50 yards set back off the street. But you can see how from a certain angle, if Suzanne Eggert was trying not to be seen or wasn't aware there was something going on there. If you're parked on the other side of this little secondary school building here, you would not be able to see into that courtyard. No. So we're exactly across the street from Claire's house right now. And she's a stone's throw from this building set off the street just like a house across the street from you, but it's a school. And right on the other side of that is the courtyard. I mean, if there was an altercation that was loud and involved revving cars and screaming people and, you know, dragging metal across a parking lot, she probably could have heard it from her house. I would think that that would have been hard to miss. She would have been able to see anything, but she definitely would have been able to hear it. For sure. So we're walking down Elm Street now. There's maybe 15 houses on this section of the block before you reach Loudon Boulevard. And on the other side of the street from Claire's house, the whole block is dominated by the school. It's the school, then the gym, looks like maybe a additional facility out there, maybe concessions and bathrooms. And then we've got a football field and track, small bleachers. This is a cool photo right here. To me, I just find this to be, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like you could, right from here, you could definitely have seen somebody in that parking lot having an altercation with somebody on a bicycle. There's no doubt about it. But it would have been interesting to know how much wind there was that day. Because honestly, if you had just a little bit of noise, it would have been really hard to have heard the people talking in that grassy alcove. It would have been really difficult. Look at these bleachers. This is like 
just picture picture a, a small town school from a movie and these bleachers in this football stadium are it. Yeah, they look like they were probably built in the 1930s or 40s. I would probably not go in that announcing booth. <laughs> no, that announcing booth is sketchy as hell. Like three really old metal poles are holding up this concrete booth. No, I would not go in there unless you really get good life insurance, maybe. So the houses on the street are small, but quaint. They're, yeah. they're pretty cute and they're well-maintained. So that's, you know, even in the newspaper accounts of Suzanne Eggert's testimony, she, it makes it seem when they talk about her parked on these different streets and looking at the grassy alcove, like she's pretty close, right? In fact, she is not very close at this point. I mean, you're talking about at least a thousand feet, at least. Yeah. Well, we're reaching Loudon Boulevard now, so we're going to go around the corner and stand there where Suzanne Eggert said she drove around to and parked after overhearing the altercation. And this is where she says she looked back and saw John Andrews leaning into the trunk of his car. And I will say you can see into the alcove from here. You can see it. There's no doubt about it. As you point out, we are a long ways away. So... Just to kind of clarify, in the first location where the, at the corner of Division and Elm, where Susan, Suzanne Eggert said that she initially heard the altercation, she could have heard it. She would have been close there. She would have been able to hear um, the voices, the car revving, all of that. She wouldn't have been able to see anything, essentially. But here at Loudon and Elm, she would have been able to see John Andrews at the back of his car. Would she have been able to hear very much from here? I don't think so. And if this is the first time that she saw anyone, so she says she knows it's John Andrews from his voice, and she probably does. But if this is the first time she actually sees who's involved, I don't know that you could make out a face from this distance. So we're standing on the sidewalk along Loudon Boulevard, and we're about... 40 feet from a track and the track goes between the bleachers and all the way around a football field. There's probably 10 yards behind the back of the football field behind the goalpost before the track. So it's probably 150 yards from end to end of this track. Then there's a parking lot. It could probably hold 80 cars. And then we've got the alcove, which is deep and it's set back behind the school so we're probably, I mean, it's almost the full length of the block that we're looking down into this alcove. Yeah, and I think the big thing here to me is that she was witnessing this at night. So it's dark. Uh, could you make out a person from here at the grassy alcove? Definitely. Could you tell even during daylight who that person is? No way. And then if you add darkness in, okay, you could tell someone's there based on, you know, taillights, you'd be able to see a person's body, but there's no way that you'd be able to confirm somebody's identity at this range at over a thousand feet. There's just no way. So when we head back in there, I see a couple lights on the side of the school, but they're small. They're just little over door lights. I'm not seeing any big parking lights. I don't see, at least from here, any lights in that courtyard. 
And we know from defense attorney David Glynn's statement, he wanted the jury to visit the site because he wanted them to apply common sense to whether or not she could see there. And he mentioned that it's better lit now than it was. It's better lit at the time of the case than it was in 1983. And I don't see a lot of lighting now. So it's entirely possible that that was very dark back then. Now, this is, I have to admit, I understand why the defense attorneys would want the jury to come to this location and see the vantage point that Suzanne Eggert had uh, at the moment of the murder of Starkey Swenson. It's not a vantage point that would lend itself to very clear, uh, clear viewing, that's for sure. All right, so to recap, after we visited the scene, it seems reasonable that Suzanne Egger could have heard the altercation in the alcove while she was sitting at the corner of Elm and Division. It also seems like she could have seen somebody next to a car near the alcove when she was at Loudon and Elm, but I think this is important to keep in mind, she almost certainly could not have identified the person that she was seeing from that distance, especially in the dark. You can definitely see why the defense attorneys wanted the jurors to see these locations. It certainly raises some questions as to the accuracy of her testimony, especially with regard to her being so sure she saw John Andrews leaning into the trunk of his car. So the jurors see the side of Shattuck Junior High, and they take a look at the grassy alcove from the vantage points of the corner of Elm and Division and the corner of Elm and Loudon. During their time on the scene, the jurors were instructed not to talk to one another. Definitely an interesting moment in the trial. Yeah, I've actually personally served on a jury in the past, and I think that the idea of leaving the courtroom to see, uh, you know, the scene of any kind of moment in an investigation is pretty interesting. So once the testimony starts back up, the jury hears from both Suzanne Egger and Claire Andrews. Essentially, their testimonies mirror what they said during the pretrial hearings, but there's a couple of points that are worth highlighting. First, Suzanne Eggert repeats her claim that John Andrews had told her repeatedly that he would like to kill Starkey Swenson. What a way to win over a new girlfriend. Yeah, it's not the way that I'd try to win over a girl, that's for sure. Claire Andrews also essentially sticks to her initial story. She does mention that John Andrews suggests to her a few times that maybe a teenager hit Starkey Swenson with a car, put his body in a truck, and then buried him up north. Claire also agrees with the defense that John Andrews has, on many previous occasions, been very upset about Claire's relationship with Starkey Swenson, but never threatened him or ever assaulted him. Obviously, this is brought up in order to inspire some doubt that Andrews was the kind of person who would commit the murder that he's accused of. If he had repeatedly been angry about Swenson in the past, what was so new about the night of August 13, 1983? Finally, Claire Andrews says that she didn't think that John Andrews would have been able to pick Starkey Swenson out of a group of 10 people. Claire said that she had no firsthand knowledge that Swenson and John Andrews had ever been seen together before Swenson's disappearance. Okay, so Claire's story doesn't quite match up with her previously published statements. In earlier testimony, we know that Claire said John Andrews confronted her after finding her with Swenson on a couple of occasions. In the preliminary hearings, she said that John Andrews was livid after finding her in Watoma following a rendezvous with Starkey shortly after her divorce was filed in 1983. There was another time, too, 
where Claire Andrews told police John apparently followed her to one of her frequent meetings with Starkey in Oshkosh and then accosted her after Swenson dropped her at her car. Plus, we can't forget that according to Suzanne Egger, John Andrews knew exactly where Starkey Swenson lived and even pointed the house out to Egger while he mentioned that he wanted to kill Swenson. Yeah, I don't buy her claim that Andrews couldn't have recognized Swenson and that he'd never seen him. It just doesn't fit with all her other statements. One other interesting aspect of the new testimony, this time from Eggert, was that the defense attorneys highlighted that there wasn't any corroborating evidence to back up her testimony. They also point out that each time she talked to the police, she added more information, which they thought was strange. When it comes to the corroborating evidence, the broken bike parts and the gouges in the parking lot and grass, as well as the broken tree, do seem to back up her accounts of the events in the grassy alcove, at least to me. Yeah, I agree. The defense attorneys also really worked hard to paint Suzanne Egger as an unreliable witness. They question why she waited 10 years to tell police this pivotal information. Just like in her earlier statements, she said she feared for her and her children's safety based on Andrew's threats, and that kept her from coming forward, at least initially. Eggert said that after living out of state for a while, and especially since her daughters had grown and married, she felt safe enough to talk to the police. She also said that she hoped other possible witnesses would come forward and break the case back in the 1980s, but that never happened. The defense also point out that Eggert continues to see John Andrews after August 13, 1983. At one point, she even told Andrews that she knew he killed Swenson and that she was going to go to the police. The defense even got her to admit that after saying that, Andrews didn't attack her and didn't try to stop her from going to the authorities. Eggert is by no means the perfect witness. It really comes down to how you take her stories in the balance and how you view the strength of the corroboration of the bicycle parts and the gouges in the parking lot. The prosecutors did seek to bolster Eggert's testimony. They brought in Carl Staffold, the janitor at Shattuck Junior High who found the bike parts, and he was able to talk about how the bike parts and the gouge marks did back up her testimony. He also mentioned seeing tire tracks in the alcove, which is an independent source backing up what Eggert said happened. Yeah, and the neighbors of Claire Andrews actually also testified in the trial to say that they saw a man on a bicycle on the night of August 13, 1983, pull into Claire's driveway. And then that bicycle rider left to go over to Shattuck Junior High's parking lot. To me, that's some important corroborating testimony. For the prosecution, even though they scored a big win with those testimonies, they had to suffer through the fact that Ron Doro, the lead detective in the case, took the stand and was forced to admit that none of the evidence they sent to the state crime lab was of any use to them. To quote Doro directly, they found nothing at all, end quote. Yeah, that's the truth. Doro actually walked the jury through some of the work and described that even though technicians carefully processed Andrew's car, and the pavement from the school. They never found a single hair from Swenson or any blood at all. Even the bright red paint found in the gouged pavement wasn't consistent with bike paint. After examining Andrew's car, they found many scrapes on the bottom. But according to Doro, the examination concluded that they were numerous because the car simply sat low to the ground. There were some other interesting small bits of testimony. When Carl Staffold, the janitor at Shattuck Junior High, took the stand, he mentioned that he found a nearly complete, damaged, three-speed, rust-red bicycle next to the small three-foot tree. 
A pedal from the bicycle, he said, had broken off, which was found by the long gouge mark at the entrance to the alcove. This is interesting as it's a bit different than what Staffold had originally told police, which was simply that he found bicycle parts. The bike next to the tree had its front wheel broken off and the wheel spokes and rim were bent and broken. Darlene Jeske, a neighbor of Andrews at the time of Swenson's disappearance, also testified that even though John Andrews was normally friendly, on August 14, the day after the murder, he seemed unusually irritated and edgy. She also said that she saw him thoroughly cleaning the car's interior and trunk. According to her testimony, she said Andrews told her that he was cleaning his car because the day prior, he had loaned it to a friend to haul chickens. All right, so this is a problem. He had told police initially in the John Doe trial that he didn't clean his car on August 14th. Then he eventually changed his mind to say that he cleaned his car because he had picked up a hitchhiker who had dog poop on his foot. So it's clear that John Andrews is caught with an inconsistent story here. The issue here is if this is simply a question of faulty memory or if he's getting caught making up his story as he goes. Yeah, this is definitely fishy. But like a lot of this story, there are discrepancies and it's really hard to judge their importance. To me, it's also interesting that Andrews told somebody that he had let a friend use a Pontiac Trans Am to haul chickens around. Doesn't exactly seem like the perfect car for that kind of job. All right, so the defense ended up deciding that it wasn't in their interest to call any witnesses. Andrews decided not to testify at his own trial and the defense rested. And with that, it would seem that John C. Andrews' fate was headed to the jury, except he decided not to take that chance. Andrews decided to interrupt his trial with an Alford plea, which allowed him to continue to deny that he was at all guilty, but did acknowledge that the prosecution had a convincing enough case it might earn a conviction. Essentially, the Alford plea let Andrews bargain for a reduced sentence rather than risk his fate with a jury that was likely to convict. As part of the plea bargain, Andrews was convicted with homicide by negligent use of a motor vehicle. John C. Andrews ended up sentenced to two years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Honestly, for Andrews, this move makes a lot of sense. If he risked it with the jury, he could have faced life imprisonment. In 1994, Andrews was again married and had people depending on him for their livelihood. He decided to take the option that seemed the least risky, and he probably made the right decision. Many of the jurors gave interviews to local media at the end of the trial, claiming that they thought he was guilty. So with that, John C. Andrews heads to prison, where he serves 14 months. The trouble is, since that time, Starkey Swenson has still never been found. A conviction in prison term definitely helped to bring some closure for Swenson's family. But for law enforcement in Winnebago County, the idea that there's still a missing body out there isn't a pleasant thought. Unfortunately, it appeared that there was nothing that could be done. However, that all changed recently when a landowner near Amro, Wisconsin, contacted the Nina Police Department with information suggesting that John Andrews buried Starkey Swenson on their land. Join us on the next episode when we interview that landowner that helped provide a new break in the case and clues that point us in the direction of where we should begin our search for Starkey Swenson. If you want to know more about the Starkey Swenson story, we highly recommend you visit our website or follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube 
for additional information, behind-the-scenes footage, and more. We will continue to post insider content and updates as this real-time investigation progresses. You can find our social media pages using the links on our website or by searching for us on our social media platforms. We'd like to take a moment to thank those who helped us compile information on this case, including the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, Newspapers.com, and individual citizens who've shared their knowledge. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available for download from Pixabay 